Well, hello, hello. I am back. I am late, <laughs> but I'm here. Um, so this week's episode is all about my adventure into California. I went to Los Angeles, Koreatown to be exact, and that's what we'll be getting into today. So for my opening, I want to address... <laughs> A bit of a crash landing. Do not be alarmed. My flight and all the airport happenings were super smooth and painless. However, <laughs> well, let's just let's just address this in dealing with like home shares and home stays, like when you're traveling, the alternatives to hotels and things like that. Um I would say be very specific in like what you are looking for. Now, I had a reservation and it was suddenly randomly canceled. I don't know why. I'm just hoping it wasn't some weird racial thing. I hear about that sometimes. But all of a sudden, I had to quickly get another one. And what I got was the cheapest I could as soon as I could with my desired availability. What I booked was a small room inside of a small apartment, which not a problem. I don't need that much space. I don't require much. But my God, <laughs> if you are going to make a piece of your living from inviting strangers into your home, for the love of God, please keep it neat and tidy. And like, just generally, can it be appealing because if I walk into a place and I don't really want to thing, I'm wondering why I paid. You know? Um again, I don't require much, but it was not it was not like if your grandmother was gonna come over, would you have her like you know what I mean? Like clean it. Clean it. <laughs> the bathroom? What is this? You look, I'm not gonna go into it because thinking back on it gives me the heebie TVs. And I am just glad that I am back home and happy and healthy and clean because Lord help me. <laughs> we were in Koreatown. I was in Koreatown staying. And so I felt fine with like <laughs> the in-house situation because dude was still there for the first two days of my trip. Which is fine, like there was a whole padlock situation on my room. But I didn't want to be in there anyway, which was the problem. That was the real problem. I don't give a look. <laughs> I just get frustrated because it's like you are, people are paying to come here. And it doesn't even look clean enough for you to invite your elders over, like your grandparents. What the hell? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> ah, <laughs> uncomfortable. Okay. I was counting the days when I had to sleep there. <sighs> it's fine. Mm. But we were in Koreatown, which was dope because I love Korean food. And there were restaurants everywhere. <laughs> so that was dope. Um, when I came in, I was tired. And didn't really feel cute. Didn't really feel like gathering the energy to be cute. But I figured, hey, no pressure. This is a networking week. I am here for 
like shaking hands and business happenings and building bridges and making connections. So I don't have to feel like Instagram pretty today. I'm just going to go because um, a place called Stokely's Cafe and Social House was having their first karaoke event. And I was like, well, I know I know karaoke and I can show up. And at least my comfort zone will be, you know, my my fallback wallflower routine. And if I'm uncomfortable, I'll just write it out and find ways to make myself smile and to entertain myself and to make it, you know, a good time. So um, that's what I did on my first night. But in order to get further into that, we have to go into the next segment. Welcome to Unicorn Tales. This is a segment where it's, I mean, it kind of infiltrates every segment on any given episode just because I am queer. But Unicorn Tales is meant for me to tell stories and relay things that are specifically about my queer experience. So starting from Stokely's, okay? 3500 West Pico Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. Okay, Stokely's Cafe and Social House. Just plugging that again. Um, So I dragged myself from the Airbnb. I texted my sort of like host in the city, um, Shelly Shell of Instagram and Les Talk Radio. um, Showed me around a little bit during this trip but that first night I wasn't sure if she was going to be available so I just kind of shot out a message on my way to the place like hey I'm going if you got time you know this is her regular week so you know can't drop everything you know so I assumed I would just be by myself so I was buckling down emotionally to get myself there smiling positive and ready for whatever solo adventure awaited me. (laughs) So I get to Stokely's. I am, of course, like one of the first people there accidentally. Um, Still towards the beginning because I did have to like go home and shower and change. But um, folks were there um, and I was super nervous and really self-conscious. I don't know. I'm familiar at least with most of the uh, the queer folk who are like out and about here in Indy. So I was just like, ah, is a little bit freeing and also burdensome to be like, no one knows me and I don't know what I want them to see. I don't know what, I mean, wh- who am I here? <laughs> what what who is okara here for them well i don't know what that looks like i don't know how this i don't know how she moves i don't know how she talks i don't know if she talks to strangers or not we didn't know what california okara was like okay so it was oddly freeing and yet burdensome because i had to make decisions about who i would be so i had to decidedly 
make sure a smile was on my face so I didn't sink into wallflower too soon without even trying to engage people in the room. Luckily, it's karaoke, so people were singing, and it always gives me joy to see people singing their hearts out, (laughs) be they drunk and off-key or, like, actually really good. It just, it makes me happy. So I threw myself into that. The bartender was super sweet and nice. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure her name was Erica, but the Instagram name is different, so I get confused. <laughs> but um, Stokely's is run by Aisha, the barber. Um, you can uh, see a little bit more about them from the no, not a podcast, the show, the web series, um, Les Factor on YouTube. Um, that's where I first encountered a lot of these names um, from people I follow. It's the reason that I felt comfortable coming to solidify some of the connections I had loosely made over the internet. So um, they made it super pleasant and, and nice, and it's a really nice venue. It feels good in there, the energy. Um, so I was having, you know, I'm alone, new city, new gaze. It's cool. I was, you know, doing my best. Karaoke, out of town. I'm that girl singing a slow song. It's Adele. I, it, that, you know, I'm that bitch. Sorry, I'm, I'm slowing it down. My bad. <laughs> um, but those, these are the songs that I know and that make me comfortable. So I sang my slow-ass Adele song. Um, and, uh... Shelly actually did show up after that, but I do, I wondered what it was that made it feel so different being with, um, within the community of queer black folk in Cali. First, I thought, well, shit, like, we know where generally queer folk can be found congregating and celebrating here in the city, but like... That sense of super black and brown dominated space and even with women being centered instead of men or femmes being centered, uh, it's like not that's that's definitely not something that I see here in my (laughs) my beloved city. Um, So I was in a sense almost overwhelmed, not not completely overwhelmed. I went to I went to Chicago once and went to um Energy, the Sunday queer queer parties that it's like a series, Energy. I think they call it something else now, but um when I went there, that was the very first time that I felt enveloped and surrounded and immersed in women queer people of color (laughs) and I was that time I was legitimately overwhelmed and I did not know what to do with myself things got crazy like there was taco eating contests things happened okay but this time it was more a sense of I was more prepared for it maybe so I was an observation and one of the first things that I noticed was I go out and I smile and, you know, I, I occupy space in, in some of these queer spaces here in the city. And I have not been approached in, we don't, we don't even know. Can we count? 
someone run these numbers we don't fucking know how long it has been since i have been like approached out by a woman or successfully felt like i like secured a flirtation with a woman in forever we don't know okay but i walk into this karaoke session by myself in a new city already feeling nervous and like within the first 20 minutes a lovely a lovely person named joy came up and offered to buy me whatever i was getting at the bar and sat and talked with me a little bit i gave her my business card and stuff like that and like i i walked away from that evening wondering what about me appeals differently here than it does in india like literally forever since i have been approached and uh, and i get there and it's like boom hey friendly vaguely interested can i buy you a drink and i'm like yeah i mean that's delightful sure that does not happen honestly it doesn't really happen with men either to be fair so (laughs) i don't i don't have whatever spell that is my mom has that spell people are so ready to buy her things (laughs) when we go out but i don't have that spell cast okay so i was like well what is what has changed (laughs) on this flight over here um so that was very interesting to me i almost had a moment where i thought well is that i don't know does that have something to do with my presentation i know that i have been shifting i am i love androgyny so sometimes i shift i push toward androgyny to the best of my ability i'm curvy as fuck but i push toward that Um, And I've been really experimenting and playing around with expressing um, my different balance of energies, masculine and feminine. So I thought maybe in indie that's not being taken well or like, I mean, I, I could say that shift to something closer to Andro style may have made it easier for me to flirt with femme femmes, like high femmes but it definitely like here in Indy it's like clink clink lockdown there's not a stud for stud thing happening here on the wide on the wide frame like that sort of disregard of outward presentation is like a small blip on the radar like I don't see that a lot the discussions that are being had and all these different queer groups I'm in on Facebook and stuff like that it's like um I don't know maybe it's harder for for the queer folk here to be that open or maybe it's still a little nerve-wracking for us here to you know disregard that outward presentation and go for the vibe but I don't know whatever it's something that I thought about and I was like well what the hell is different (laughs) I've been here for two hours And there's a drink being bought for me from someone friendly and who saw me across the room or something like that. And I'm like, I did the same things I always do, which is do my best to smile and engage in the room, not be on my phone, even if I'm by myself. Like, it's the same shit I've been doing. (laughs) So that was baffling to me. And I'm like, what the hell does a queer black girl got to do? you know to be able to kind of comfortably date in her own city like shit all my crushes are out of town at this point you know what i'm saying like 
That is not sustainable. It is not sustainable because nobody is running out to Cali just to flirt. Okay. So (laughs) I guess I'm just going to keep taking these L's at home, you know, and then winning, winning uh, on the away games is what I'm saying. I'm trying. Look, (laughs) moving on. (laughs) I want to plug a few of the other um, black owned, queer black owned spaces. Um, that I got to engage with in this next segment. Well, I am still, to this day, a week later, super jazzed about these queer spaces, these queer black and brown owned and operated spaces starting with again stokely's cafe and social house a daytime non-alcohol centered space for us to build community and strengthen bonds and talk and just be um and there's also a ton of events um throughout the week that are going to be staple events for stokely's so there's a lot to do You can go there to get work done, and then the next day in the evening, you can go do karaoke. You know what I mean? So that's super dope. Um, Then there's, uh, let's see, My Two Cents. My Two Cents is a black-owned restaurant um, that Shelly Shell took me to. um, Bless her heart. Shelly Shell cleared her day for me on Wednesday, and took me around to all the places that I have been wanting to patronize and and wanting to engage with um so we went to my two cents and I had delicious food super fresh and and inventive ways of putting together these ingredients um there was cornbread that was fluffy and buttery and the honey was already pre-drizzled which is how I eat my cornbread okay so I was stoked about that (laughs) validated even um Shelly got a pork chop and we were trying to figure out what that slightly sweet element was that was balancing out all the savory it was plantains no big deal okay we walked in first of all and dude was like what up cut and I was like well hello (laughs) what a welcome my brother (laughs) so um it was really good. I got some variation of a crab cake because I'm basic and I, I like seafood, okay? Um, so we took my two cents leftovers and went over to High and Tight to get your girl a haircut. I waited patiently to save my haircut for when I arrived in California. I wanted to go and use my resources from my queer black community and so we went to high and tight on 4759 west washington boulevard los angeles california um and i got my hair cut i had good conversations i laughed i smiled i was in awe i admired there were hats and vintage like a curated collection of vintage clothes for sale inside some cbd topical products for skin and aches and things like that um butters for hair and all of that with cbd in it um 
it, it was dope it was really dope another really nice space like just look nice stokely's and high and tight both have a similar kind of deconstructed chic thing going on so it's like they literally look like catalogs both of these places um stokely's by the way is 3500 west pico boulevard los angeles california and then high and tight the barber shop um 4759 West Washington Boulevard and then right next door okay is Stuzo Clothing yes get pumped all right because I have been plotting on Stuzo Clothing for so fucking long I finally went in it's um the brainchild of Uzo and Stony um and they own and operate it, put all of their black magic and love into it. Um, it's it's a queer clothing store, okay? Like, the representation, the captions on the clothing items that have words on them, the super accessible androgynous. It, they make androgyny so accessible, you know? Like, even if you have curves and even... You know what I mean? Like, they just make it so accessible, which is why I've been obsessed. <laughs> For almost a year. Um, so I finally got my... I got a bright yellow. You've probably seen it by now. I got my bright yellow sweatshirt. Crop top, because I am crop top shorty. 2K19 all day, honey. So I got it, and it says queen on the front. Ugh, I love it so much. I adore it. I feel like sunshine in it. <laughs> but also, Daddy, you know what? Are you, I mean, look, it's balance. Um, so there was that. And so Studio Clothing technically is um, 4751 West Washington Boulevard. It's literally like two, one or two doors down um, from high and tight. So that was dope. We stopped in there, had, um, again, dope conversations. I really enjoyed sharing space with Uzo and Stoney. These are individuals who I have been, uh, watching their movements online from afar and like really admiring and loving, uh, what they do and what they stand for. And I don't know, they, how they move means a lot to me. Um, so I was in heaven. I was in heaven. And then, there was a Prince poster on the wall. Look, y'all know how I am. So I was very excited. <laughs> um, so, and then there was, uh, after that, we went over to uh, Create Studios. So, KR38STU, um, run by Jelly P or JP Stacks do3 on instagram um they absolutely like shelly walked me into their studio in their home studio and they absolutely embraced me and what i do and we started to record a song like just flat out started to record a song now i can't let you hear it yet because it's not finished but they had visuals, like just of me being in the room, you know, but the visuals had a vibe that went with the song and I've not done that before. So I'm very excited. I'm so jazzed to share that with you all. That is literally my California song. That is my going back to Cali, okay, LL. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling so blessed that Jelly took the time um, to bestow their gifts and their energy 
and their equipment onto my craft and my my visit and to make something that I could take away I think that was that was so beautiful and it went so well like we were just listening to some beats I started mumbling some of the shit that I have written in my notebook and it started to work and we did it and lord we did it as I was a little bit inebriated so you know (laughs) we it was a surprise when it started to click together and when it started to click together everything just my head cleared and everything it it just started to go so we're going to be finishing that long distance and I will be sharing that with you very 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 soon um and then let's see what else uh the second to last night of my stay I went to naval um 1611 south hope street los angeles california a little deeper like downtown um los angeles and uh that was stupendous um (laughs) it was this amazing open dialogue the event itself was called can i please speak to your manager it was this amazing open dialogue there were unexpected hors d'oeuvres and wine and water and and just the delicious niblets um to accompany a really nice open dialogue um centered on kind of accountability through empathy and engagement it was a space where women of color were orchestrating and and uh engaging curating this experience for the attendees to really talk about um (laughs) being your being black experiencing life uh black as a creator as an employee as an employer as a customer in different spaces uh it was it was really dope there was agreement and there was disagreement and there was um dissection of the disagreement it was just those are how things really move forward is when we can be accountable via empathy and understanding because then we can learn from one another and we can work together truly so i very much appreciated that um it put me in the mindset being at naval put me in the mindset of um I don't know women in power powerful women making space for people and so that kind of leads me to our mental mukbang today um and i'm going to do a f- i'm think i'm gonna read it fully um a short story from octavia butler um because the folks at naval kind of inspired me and I was reading Octavia on the plane (laughs) on the way there so if you are down for that you can go ahead and keep listening if you aren't into listening to a full story then I would say you can go ahead and end now because we're about to go into a mental mukbang and I'm about to dive into this story so I'm not going to be worried about you by that time (laughs) but I love you I love you if this is where you stop I love you so much thank you for listening to my Cali Ventures um and I hope to be able to share the fruits of that visit with you very very soon
The Evening and the Morning and the Night by Octavia Butler. When I was 15 and trying to show my independence by getting careless with my diet, my parents took me to a Duria Gode disease ward. They wanted me to see, they said, where I was headed if I wasn't careful. In fact, it was where I was headed no matter what. It was only a matter of when, now or later. My parents were putting in their vote for later. I won't describe the ward. It's enough to say that when they brought me home, I cut my wrists. I did a thorough job of it. Old Roman style in a bathtub of warm water almost made it. My father dislocated his shoulder breaking down the bathroom door and he and I never forgave each other for that day. The disease got him almost three years later, just before I went off to college. It was sudden. It doesn't happen that way often. Most people notice themselves beginning to drift or their relatives notice and they make arrangements with their chosen institution. People who were noticed and who resist going can be locked up for a week's observation. I don't doubt that that observation period breaks up a few families. Sending someone away for what turns out to be a false alarm. Well, it isn't the sort of thing a victim is likely to forgive or forget. On the other hand, not sending someone away in time, missing the signs, or having a person go off suddenly without signs is inevitably dangerous for the victim. I've never heard of it going as badly, though, as it did in my family. People normally injure themselves only when their name, when their time comes, unless someone is stupid enough to try to handle them without the necessary drugs or restraints. My father had killed my mother, then killed himself. I wasn't home when it happened. I stayed at school later than usual, rehearsing graduation exercises. And by the time I got home, there were cops everywhere. There was an ambulance and two attendants were wheeling someone out on a stretcher. Someone covered. More than covered. Almost bagged. The cops wouldn't let me in. I didn't find out until later exactly what had happened. I wish I'd never found out. Dad had killed Mom, then skinned her completely. At least, that's how I hope it had happened. I mean... I hope he killed her first. He broke some of her ribs, damaged her heart, digging. Then he began tearing at himself through skin and bone, digging. He had managed to reach his own heart before he died. It was an especially bad example of the kind of thing that makes people afraid of us. It gets some of us into trouble for picking at a pimple or even for daydreaming. It has, inspired, it has inspired restrictive laws, created problems with jobs, housing, schools. The Duriago Disease Foundation has spent millions telling the world that people like my father don't exist. A long time later, when I had gotten myself together as best I could, I went to college, to the University of Southern California, on a Dilge scholarship. Dilge is the retreat you try to send your out-of-control DGD relatives to. It's run by a controlled DGD like me. Parents, like my parents, when they lived. 
God knows how many control DGDs stand it. Anyway, the place has a waiting list miles long. My parents put me on it after my suicide attempt, but chances were I'd be dead by the time my name came up. I can't say why I went to college, except that I'd been going to school all my life and didn't know what else to do. I didn't go with any particular hope. Hell, I knew what I was in for. Eventually. I was just marking time. Whatever I did was just marking time. If people were willing to pay me to go to school and mark time, why not do it? The weird part was, I worked hard. Got top grades. If you worked hard enough at something, that doesn't matter. You could forget, excuse me, if you worked hard enough at something that doesn't matter, you can forget for a while about the things that do. Sometimes I thought about trying suicide again. How, how was it I'd had the courage when I was 15 but didn't have it now? Two DGD parents, both religious, both as opposed to abortion as they were to suicide, so they had trusted God and the promises of modern medicine and had a child. But how could I look at what had happened to them and trust anything? I majored in biology. Non-DGDs say something about our disease makes us good at the sciences, genetics, molecular biology, biochemistry. That's something. That's terror. Terror and a kind of driving hopelessness. Some of us went bad and became destructive before we had to. Yes, we did produce more than our fair share of criminals. And some of us went good, spectacularly, and made scientific and medical history. These last kept the doors at least partly open for the rest of us. They made discoveries in genetics, found cures for a couple of rare diseases, made advances against other diseases that weren't so rare, including, ironically, some forms of cancer. But they'd found nothing to help themselves. There had been nothing since the last improvements on the diet, and those came just before I was born. They, like the original diet, gave more DGDs the courage to have children. They were supposed to do what for DGDs what insulin had done for diabetics. Give us a normal or nearly normal lifespan. Maybe they had worked for someone somewhere. They hadn't worked for anyone I knew. Biology school was a pain in the usual ways. Didn't eat in public anymore. Didn't like the way people stared at my biscuits, cleverly dubbed dog biscuits, in every school I'd ever attended. You'd think university students would be more creative. I didn't like the way people edged away from me when they caught sight of my emblem. I'd begun wearing it on a chain around my neck and putting it down inside my blouse, but people managed to notice it anyway. People who don't eat in public who drink nothing more interesting than water, who drink nothing, who smoke nothing at all, people like that are suspicious, or rather, they make others suspicious. Sooner or later, one of those others, finding my fingers and wrists bare, would fake an interest in my chain. That would be that. I couldn't hide the emblem in my purse. If anything happened to me, medical people would see it 
had to see it in time to avoid giving me the medications they might use on a normal person. It isn't just ordinary food we have to avoid, but about a quarter of a physician's desk reference of widely used drugs. Every now and then there are news stories about people who stopped carrying their emblems, probably trying to pass as normal. Then they have an accident. By the time you, anyone realizes that there is anything wrong, it's too late. So I wore my emblem. In one way or another, people got a look at it and or got the word from someone who had. She is. Yeah. At the beginning of my third year, four other DGDs and I decided to rent a house together. We'd all had enough of being leopards 24 hours a day. There was an English major. He wanted to be a writer and tell our story from the inside, which had only been done 30 or 40 times before. There was a special education major who hoped the handicapped would accept her more readily than the able-bodied. The pre-med planned to go into research, and a chemistry major who didn't really know what she wanted to do. Two men and three women. All we had in common was our disease, plus a weird combination of stubborn intensity about whatever we happened to be doing, and hopeless cynicism about everything else. Healthy people say no one can concentrate like a DGD. Healthy people have all the time in the world for stupid generalizations and short attention spans. We did our work, came up for air now and then, ate our biscuits, and attended class. Our only problem was house cleaning. We worked out a schedule of who would clean what, when, who would deal with the yard, whatever. We all agreed on it, then, except for me, everyone seemed to forget about it. I found myself going around reminding people to vacuum, clean the bathroom, mow the lawn. I figured they'd all hate me in no time, but I wasn't going to be their maid, and I wasn't going to live in filth. Nobody complained. Nobody even seemed annoyed. They just came up out of their academic days, cleaned, mopped, mowed, and then went back to it. I got into the habit of running around in the evening reminding people. It didn't bother me if it didn't bother them. How'd you get to be house mother? A visiting DGD asked. I shrugged. Who cares? The house works. It did. It worked so well that this new guy wanted to move in. He was a friend of one of the others and another pre-med. Not bad looking. So do I get in or don't I? He asked. As far as I'm concerned, you do, I said. I did what his friend should have done, introduced him around, and then after he left, talked to the others to make sure nobody had any real objections. He seemed to fit right in. He forgot to clean the toilet and or mow the lawn, just like the others. His name was Alan Chi. I thought Chi was a Chinese name, and I wondered. But he told me his father was Nigerian, and that in Igbo, the word meant a kind of guardian angel or personal god. He said his own personal god hadn't been looking out for him well, very well, to let him be born to two GD, DGD parents. So him too. I don't think it was much more than that similarity that drew us together at first. Sure, I liked the way he looked, but I was used to liking someone's looks and having him run like hell when he found out what I was. It took me a while to get used to the fact that Alan wasn't going anywhere. I told him about my visit to the DGD ward when I was 15, 
and my suicide attempt afterwards. I had never told anyone else. I was surprised at how relieved it made me feel to tell him, and somehow his reaction didn't surprise me. Why didn't you try again? He asked. We were alone in the living room. At first, because of my parents, I said. My father in particular, I couldn't do that to him again. And after him? Fear, inertia, he nodded. When I do it, there'll be no half measures, no being rescued, no waking up in a hospital later. You mean to do it? The day I realize I've started to drift, thank God we get some warning. Not necessarily. Yes, we do. I've done a lot of reading, even talked to a couple of doctors. Don't believe the rumors non-DGDs invent. I looked away. Stared into the scarred, empty fireplace. I told him exactly how my father had died, something else I had never voluntarily told anyone. He sighed. Jesus. We looked at each other. What are you going to do? He asked. I don't know. He extended a dark, square hand, and I took it and moved closer to him. He was a dark, square man. My height, half again my weight and none of it fat. He was so bitter sometimes, he scared me. My mother started to drift when I was three, he said. My father only lasted a few months longer. I heard he died a couple of years after he went into the hospital. If the two of them had, made, had had any sense, they would have had me aborted from the minute my mother realized she was pregnant. But she wanted a kid no matter what, and she was Catholic. He shook his head. Hell, they should pass a law to sterilize a lot of us. They? I said. You want kids? No, but more like us to end up chewing their fingers off in some DGD ward. I don't want kids, but I don't want someone else telling me I can't have any. He stared at me until I began to feel stupid and defensive. I moved away from him. Do you want someone else telling you what to do with your body? I asked. No need, he said. I had that taken care of as soon as I was old enough. This left me staring. I thought through steriliz I thought about sterilization, but what DGD hasn't? But I didn't know anyone else our age who had actually gone through with it. That would be like killing a part of yourself, even though it wasn't a part of you you intended to use. Killing a part of yourself when so much of you was already dead. The damn disease could be wiped out in a generation. But people are still animals when it comes to breeding. Still following mindless urges like dogs and cats. My impulse was to get up and go away. Leave him to wallow in his bitterness and depression alone. But I stayed. He seemed to want to live even less than I did. I wondered how he'd made it this far. Are you looking forward to doing research? I probe. Do you believe you'll be able to? No. I blinked. The word was as cold and dead a sound as I'd ever heard. I don't believe in anything, he said. I took him to bed. He was the only other DGD double I had ever met. 
and if nobody did anything for him, he wouldn't last much longer. I couldn't just let him slip away. For a while, maybe we could be each other's reason for staying alive. He was a good student, for the same reason I was, and he seemed to shed some of his bitterness as time passed. Being around him helped me understand why, against all sanity, two DGDs would lock in on each other and start talking about marriage. Who else would have us? We probably wouldn't last very long anyway these days. Most DGDs made it to 40, at least. But then, most of them don't have two DGD parents. As bright as Alan was, he might not get into medical school because of his double inheritance. No one would tell him his bad genes were keeping him out, of course, but we both knew what his chances were. Better to train doctors who were likely to live long enough to put their training to use. Alan's mother had been sent to Dilch. He hadn't seen her or been able to get any information out about, about her from his grandparents while he was at home. By the time he left for college, he'd stop asking questions. Maybe it was hearing about my parents that made him start again. I was with him when he called Dilge. Until that moment, he hadn't even known whether his mother was still alive. Surprisingly, she was. Dilge must be good, I said when he hung up. People don't usually... I mean... Yeah, I know. People don't usually live long once they're out of control. Dilge is different. We had gone to my room where he turned a chair backward and sat down. Dilge is what others ought to be, if you can't believe, if you could believe the literature. Dilge is a giant DGD ward, I said. It's richer, probably better at sucking in the donations, and it's run by people who can expect to become patients eventually. Apart from that, what's different? I've read about it, he said. So should you. They've got some new treatment. They don't just shut people away to die the way others do. What else is there to do with them? With us? I don't know. It sounded like they have some kind of sheltered workshop. They've got patients doing things. A new drug to control the self-destructiveness? I don't think so. We would have heard about that. What else could it be? I'm going up to find out. Will you come with me? You're going up to see your mother. He took a ragged breath. Yeah. Will you come with me? I went to one of my windows and stared out at the weeds. We let them thrive in the backyard. In the front, we mowed them, along with a few patches of grass. I told you my DGD ward experience. You're not 15 now. And Dilge isn't some zoo of a ward. It's got to be, no matter what they tell the public, and I'm not sure I can stand it. He got up, came to stand next to me. Will you try? I didn't say anything. I focused on our reflections in the window glass, the two of us together. It looked right, felt right. He put his arm around me, and I leaned back against him. Our being together had been good for me as it seemed for him. It had given me something to go on besides inertia and fear. I knew I would go with him. It felt like the right thing to do. I can't say how I'll act when we get there, I said. I can't say how I'll act either, he admitted, especially when I see her. He made the appointment for next Saturday afternoon. 
You make appointments to go to Dilge unless you're a government inspector of some kind. That is the custom, and Dilge gets away with it. We left LA in the rain early Saturday morning. Rain followed us off and up on the coast as far as Santa Barbara. Dilge was hidden away in the hills, not far, not far from San Jose. We could have reached it faster by driving up I-5, but neither of us were in the mood for all that bleakness. As it was, we arrived at 1 p.m. to be met by two armed gate guards. One of these phoned the main building and verified our appointment, then the other took the wheel from Alan. Sorry, he said, but no one is permitted inside without an escort. We'll meet your guide at the garage. None of this surprised me. Dilge is a place where not only the patients, but much of the staff has DGD. A maximum security prison wouldn't have been as potentially dangerous. Well, on the other hand, I'd never heard of anyone getting chewed up here. Hospitals and rest homes had accidents. Dilge didn't. It was beautiful. An old estate. One that didn't make sense in the days of high taxes. It had been owned by the Dilge family. Oil, chemicals, pharmaceuticals. Ironically, they had even owned part of the late, unlamented Hedion Laboratories. They had had a briefly profitable interest in the Hedion Co., the magic bullet, the cure for the large percentage of the world's cancer and a number of, seri- and a number of serious viral diseases, and the cause of Duriagode disease. If one of your parents was treated with Hedion Co., and you were conceived after the treatments, you had DGD. If you had kids, you passed it on to them. Not everyone was equally affected. They didn't all commit suicide or murder, but they all mutilated themselves to some degree if they could. And they all drifted off into the world of their own and stopped responding to their surroundings. Anyway, the only Dilge son of his generation had had his life saved by Hedenko. Then he had watched four of his children die before doctors Kenneth Duria and Jane Goad came up with a decent understanding of the problem and a partial solution, the diet. They gave Richard Dilge a way of keeping his next two children alive. He gave the big, cumbersome estate over to the care of DGD patients. So the main building was an elaborate old mansion. There were other newer buildings, more like guest houses than institutional buildings. And there were wooded hills all around. Nice country, green. The ocean wasn't far away. There was an old garage and a small parking lot. Waiting in the lot was a tall old woman. Our guard pulled up near her, let us out, and then parked the car in the half-empty garage. Hello, the woman said, extending her hand. I'm Beatrice Alcantara. The hand was cool and dry and startlingly strong. I thought the woman was DGD, but her age threw me. She appeared to be about 60, and I had never seen a DGD that old. I wasn't sure why I thought she was DGD. If she was, she must have been an experimental model, one of the first to survive. Is it doctor or miss? Alan asked. It's Beatrice, she said. I am a doctor, but we don't use titles much here. Alan glanced. I glanced at Alan. I glanced at Alan, was surprised to see him smiling at her. 
He tended to go a long time between smiles. I looked at Beatrice and couldn't see anything to smile about. As we introduced ourselves, I realized I didn't like her. I couldn't see any reason for that either, but my feelings were my feelings. I didn't like her. I assume neither of you have been here before, she said, smiling down at us. She was at least six feet tall and straight. We shook our heads. Let's go in the front way then. I want to prepare you for what we do here. I don't want you to believe you've come to a hospital. I frowned at her, wondering what else there was to believe. Dilge was called a retreat, but what difference did names make? The house close up looked like one of the old-style public buildings, massive Baroque front with single doomed domed tower reaching three stories above the three-story house. Wings of the house stretched from for some direction, excuse me, wings of the house stretched for some distance to the right and to the left of the tower, then cornered and stretched back twice as far. The doors were huge, one set of wrought iron and one of heavy wood. Neither appeared to be locked. Beatrice pulled open the iron door, pushed open the wooden one, and gestured us in. Inside the house was an art museum, huge, high-ceilinged, tile-floored. There were marble columns and niches in which sculptures stood or paintings hung. There were other sculptures displayed around the room. At one end of the rooms, there was a broad staircase leading up to the gallery that went around the rooms. There were more art works displayed. All this, Beatrice said, was made here. Some of it was even sold from here. Most go to galleries in the Bay Area or down around L.A. Our only problem is turning out too much of it. You mean the patients do this? I asked. The old woman nodded. This and much more. Our people work instead of tearing at themselves or staring into space. One of them invented the PV locks that protect this place, though I almost wish he hadn't. It's gotten us more government attention than we'd like. What kind of locks? I asked. Sorry, palm print, voice print. The first and the best. We have the patent. She looked at Alan. Would you like to see what your mother does? Wait a minute, he said. You're telling us out-of-control DGDs create art and invent things? And that lock, I said. I've never heard of anything like that. I didn't even see a lock. The lock is new, she said. There have been a few news stories about it. It's not the kind of thing most people would buy for their homes, too expensive. So it's off... It's of limited interest. People tend to look at what's done at Dilge in the way they look at the efforts of idiot savants. Interesting, incomprehensible, but not really important. Those likely to be interested in the lock and able to afford it know about it. She took a deep breath, faced Alan again. Oh yes, DGDs create things. At least they do here. Out of control DGDs. Yes. I expected to find them weaving blankets or something, at best. I know what DGD wards are like. So do I, she said. I know what they're like in hospitals, and I know what it's like here. 
She waved a hand toward an abstract painting that looked like a photo I had once seen on the Orion Nebula, of the Orion Nebula. Darkness broken by a great cloud of light and color. Here, we can help them channel their energies. They can create something beautiful, useful, even something worthless. But they create. They don't destroy. Why? Alan demanded. It can't be some drug. We would have heard. It's not a drug. Then what is it? I haven't... Why haven't other hospitals... Alan, she said. Wait. He stood, frowning at her. Do you want to see your mother? Of course I want to see her. Good. Come with me. Things will sort themselves out. She led us to a corridor past offices where people talked to one another, waved to Beatrice, worked with computers. They could have been anywhere. I wondered how many of them were controlled DGDs. I also wondered what kind of game the old woman was playing with her secrets. We passed through rooms so beautiful and perfectly kept, it was obvious they were rarely used. Then, at a broad, heavy door, she stopped us. Look at anything you like as we go on, she said, but don't touch anything or anyone. And remember that some of the people you'll see injured themselves before they came to us. They still bear the scars of those injuries. Some of the scars may be difficult to look, to look at, but you will be in no danger. Keep that in mind. No one here will harm you. She pushed the door open and gestured us in. Scars didn't bother me much. Disability didn't bother me. It was the act of self-mutilation that scared me. It was someone attacking her own arm as though it were a wild animal. It was someone who had torn at himself and been restrained or drugged off and on for so long that he barely had a recognizable human feature left. But he was still trying with what he did have to dig into his own flesh. Those are a couple of the things I saw at the DGD ward when I was 15. Even then, I could have stood better if I hadn't felt I was looking into some kind of temporal mirror. I wasn't aware of walking through the doorway. I wouldn't have thought that I could do it. The old woman said something, though, and I found myself on the other side of the door with the door closing behind me. I turned to stare at her. She put her hand on my arm. It's all right, she said quietly. That door looks like a wall to a great many people. I backed away from her, out of her reach, repelled by her touch. Shaking hands had been enough, for God's sake. Something in her seemed to come to attention as she watched me. It made her even straighter. Deliberately, but for no apparent reason, she stepped toward Alan, touched him the way people do sometimes when they brush past, a kind of tactile, excuse me, in that wide, empty corridor, it was totally unnecessary. For some reason, she wanted to touch him and wanted me to see. What did she think she was doing? Flirting at her age? I glared at her, found myself suppressing an irrational urge to shove her away from him. The violence of the urge amazed me. Beatrice smiled and turned away. This way, she said. Alan put his arm around me and tried to lead me after her. Wait a minute, I said, not moving. Beatrice glanced around. What just happened? I asked. I was ready for her to lie, to say nothing happened, to pretend not to know what I was talking about. 
Are you planning to study medicine? She, she asked. What? What does that have to do? Study medicine. You may be able to do a great deal of good. She strode away, taking long steps so that we had to hurry to keep up. She led us through a room in which some people worked at, a, at computer terminals and others pencils and paper. It would have been an ordinary scene except that some people had half their faces ruined or only one hand or leg or had other obvious scars. But they were all in control now. They were working. They were intent but not intent on self-destruction. Not one was digging into or tearing away flesh. When we had passed through this room and into a small ornate sitting room, Alan grasped Beatrice's arm. What is it? He demanded, what do you do for them? She patted his hand, setting my teeth on edge. I will tell you, she said. I want you to know, but I want you to see your mother first. To my surprise, he nodded, let it go at that. Sit a moment, she said to us. We sat in, un we sat in comfortable, matching, upholstered chairs. Alan looking reasonably relaxed. What was it about the old lady that relaxed him but put me on edge? Maybe she reminded him of his grandmother or something. She didn't remind me of anyone. And what was that nonsense about studying medicine? I wanted you to pass through at least one Rourke room before we talked about your mother, about the two of you. She turned to face me. You've had a bad experience at a hospital or rest home? I looked away from her, not wanting to think about it. Hadn't people in that mock office been enough of a reminder? Horror film office, nightmare office, it's all right, she said. You don't have to go into detail, just outline it for me. I obeyed slowly against my will, all the while wondering why I was doing it. She nodded, unsurprised. Harsh, loving people. Your parents, are they alive? No. Were they both DGD? Yes, but... Yes, of course. Aside from the obvious ugliness of your hospital experience and its implications for the future, what impressed you about the people in the ward? I didn't know what to answer. What did she want? Why did she want anything from me? She should have been concerned with Alan and his mother. Did you see people unrestrained? Yes, I whispered. One woman, I don't know how it happened that she was free. She ran up to us and slammed into my father without moving him. He was a big man. She bounced off, fell, and began to tear at herself. She bit her own arm and swallowed the flesh that she'd bitten away. She tore at the wound she'd made with the nails of her other hand. She... I screamed at her to stop. I hugged myself, remembering the young woman, bloody, cannibalizing herself as she lay at our feet, digging into her own flesh, digging. They try so hard, fight so hard to get out. Out of what? Alan demanded. I looked at him, hardly seeing him. Lynn, out of what? I shook my head. Their restraints, their disease, the ward, their bodies... He glanced at Beatrice and spoke to me. Did the girl talk? No. She screamed. He turned away from me uncomfortably. 
Is this important? He asked Beatrice. Very, she said. Well, can we talk about it after I see my mother? Then and now. She spoke to me. Did the girl stop what she was doing when you told her to? The, no the nurses had her a moment later. It, it didn't matter. It mattered. Did she stop? Yes. According to the literature, they rarely respond to anyone, Alan said. True. Beatrice gave him a sad smile. Your mother will probably respond to you, though. Is she... He glanced at the nightmare office. Is she as controlled as those people? Yes, though she hasn't always been. Your mother works with clay now. She loves shapes and textures and... She's blind, Alan said, voicing the suspicion as though it were fact. Beatrice's words had sent my thoughts in the same direction. Beatrice hesitated. Yes, she said finally, and for the usual reason. I had intended to prepare you slowly. I've done a lot of reading. I hadn't done much reading, but I knew what the usual reason was. The woman had gouged, ripped, or otherwise destroyed her eyes, and she would be badly scarred. I got up, went over to sit on the arm of Alan's chair. I rested my hand on his shoulder, and he reached up and held it there. Can we see her now? He asked. Beatrice got up. This way, she said. We passed through more workrooms. People painted, assembled machinery, sculpted in wood, stone, even composed and played music. Almost no one noticed us. The patients were true to their disease in that respect. They weren't ignoring us. They clearly didn't know we existed. Only the few controlled DGD guards gave themselves away by waving or speaking up to Beatrice. I watched a woman work quickly, knowledgeably, with a power saw. She obviously understood the parameters of her body, but was not so and was not so disassociated to perceive herself as trapped in something she need to dig her way out of. What had Dilge done for these people that other hospitals didn't do? And how could Dilge withhold its treatment from others? Over here we make our own diet foods, Beatrice said, pointing through the window toward one of the guest houses. We permit more variety and toward excuse me we permit more variety and make fewer mistakes than the commercial preparers no ordinary person can concentrate on the work the way our people can i turned to face her what are you saying that the bigots are right that we have some special gift yes she said it's hardly a bad characteristic is it it's what people say whenever one of us does well at something. It's their way of denying us credit for our work. Yes, but people occasionally come to the right conclusions for the wrong reasons. I shrugged, not interested in arguing with her about it. Alan, she said. He looked at her. Your mother is in the next room. He swallowed and nodded. We both followed her into the room. Naomi Chi was a small woman, hair still dark, fingers long and thin, graceful as they shaped the clay. Her face was a ruin. Not only her eyes, but most of her nose and ear were gone. What was left was badly scarred. 
Her parents were poor, Beatrice said. I don't know how much they told you, Alan, but they went through all the money they had, trying to keep her at a decent place. Her mother felt so guilty, you know. She was the one who had cancer and took the drug. Eventually, they had to put Naomi in one of those state-approved custodial care places, you know, the kind. For a while, it was all the government would pay for. Places like that, well, sometimes the patients were really troublesome, especially the ones who kept breaking free. They'd put them in a bare room and let them finish themselves. The only things those places took good care of were the maggots, the cockroaches, and the rats. I shuddered. I've heard there are still places like that. There are, Beatrice said. Kept open by greed and indifference. She looked at Alan. Your mother survived for three months in one of those places. I took her from there myself. Later, I was instrumental in having that particular place closed. You took her? I asked. Dilge didn't exist then, but I was working with a group of controlled DGDs in L.A. Naomi's parents heard about us and asked us to take her. A lot of people didn't trust us then. Only a few of us were medically trained. All of us were young, idealistic, and ignorant. We began an old frame house again in an old frame house with a leaky roof. Naomi's parents were grabbing at straws. So were we. And by pure luck, we grabbed a good one. We were able to prove ourselves to the Dilge family and take over these quarters. Prove what? I asked. She turned to look at Alan and his mother. Alan was staring at Naomi's ruined face, at the ropey, discolored scar tissue. Naomi was shaping the image of an old woman and two children. The gaunt-lined face of the old woman was remarkably vivid, detailed in a way that seemed impossible for a blind sculptress. Naomi seemed unaware of us. Her total attention remained on her work. Alan forgot about what Beatrice had said and reached out to touch the scarred face. Beatrice let it happen. Naomi didn't seem to notice. If I get her attention for you, Beatrice said. We'll be breaking her routine. We'll have to stay with her until she gets back into it without hurting herself. About half an hour. You can get her attention? He asked. Yes. Can she... I've never heard of anything like this. Can she talk? Yes. She may not choose to, though, and if she does, she'll do it very slowly. Do it. Get her attention. She'll want to touch you. That's all right. Do it. Beatrice took Naomi's hand and held them still, away from the wet clay. For several seconds, Naomi tugged at her captive hands as though unable to understand why they did not move as she wished. Beatrice stepped closer and spoke quietly, Stop, Naomi. And Naomi was still. Blind face turned toward Beatrice in an attitude of attentive waiting. Totally focused waiting. Company, Naomi. After a few seconds, Naomi made a wordless sound. Beatrice gestured Alan to her side, gave Naomi one of his hands. It didn't bother me this time when she touched him. I was too interested in what was happening. Naomi examined Alan's hand minutely, then followed up the arm to the shoulder, the neck, 
the face. Holding his face between her hands, she made a sound. It may have been a word, but I couldn't understand it. All I could think of was the danger of those hands. I thought of my father's hands. His name is Alan Chi, Naomi. He's your son. Several seconds passed. The son? This time, the word was quite distinct, though her lips had split in many places and had healed badly. Son? She repeated anxiously. Here? He's all right, Naomi. He's come to visit. Mother? He said. She examined his face again. He had been there when she started to drift. It didn't seem possible that she could find anything in his face that she would remember. I wondered whether she remembered she had a son. Alan? She found herself. She found his tears and paused at them. She touched her own face where there should have been an eye. Then she reached back towards his eyes. An instant before I could have grabbed her hand, Beatrice did it. No, Beatrice said firmly. The hand fell limply to Naomi's side. Her face turned toward Beatrice like an antique weather vane swinging around. Beatrice stroked her hair and Naomi said something I almost understood. Beatrice looked at Alan, who was frowning and wiping away tears. Hug your son, Beatrice said softly. Naomi turned, groping, and Alan seized her in a tight, long hug. Her arms went around him slowly. She spoke words blurred by her ruined mouth, and, but just understandable. Parents, she said, did my parents care for you? Alan looked at her, clearly not understanding. She wants to know whether her parents took care of you, I said. He glanced at me doubtfully and looked at Beatrice. Yes, she just wants to know that they cared for you. They did, he said. They kept their promise to you, mother. Several seconds passed. Naomi made sounds that even Alan took to be weeping, and he tried to comfort her. Who else is here, she said finally. This time Alan looked at me. I repeated what she had said. Her name is Lynn Mortimer. She, he said, I'm... He paused awkwardly. She and I are going to be married. After a time, she moved back from him and said my name. My first impulse was to go to her. I wasn't afraid or repelled by her now, but for no reason I could explain, I looked at Beatrice. Go, she said, but you and I will have to talk later. I went to Naomi, took her hand. B, she said. No, I'm Lynn, I said softly. She drew a quick breath. No, no, you're... I'm Lynn. Do you want B? She's here. She said nothing. She put her hand to my face, explored it slowly. I let her do it, confident I could stop her if she turned violent. But first one hand, then both went over me very gently. You'll marry my son, she said finally. Yes. Good. You'll keep him safe. As much as possible, we'll keep each other safe. Yes, I said.
good. No one will close him away from himself. No one will tie him or cage him. Her hand wandered to her own face again, nails biting in slightly. No, I said softly, catching the hand. I want you to be safe too. The mouth moved. I think it smiled. Son, she said. He understood, took her hand. Clay, she said. Lynn and Alan and Clay. B? Of course, Beatrice said. Do you have an impression? No. It was the fastest Naomi had answered anything. Then, almost childlike, she whispered, Yes. Beatrice laughed. Touch them again if you like, Naomi. They don't mind. We didn't. Alan closed his eyes, trusting her gentleness in a way I could not. I had no trouble accepting her touch, even so near my eyes, but I did not delude myself about her. Her gentleness could turn in an instant. Naomi's fingers twitched near Alan's eyes, and I spoke up at once, out of fear for him. Just touch him, Naomi, only touch. She froze, made an interrogative sound. She's all right, Alan said. I know, I said, not believing it. He would be all right, though, as long as someone watched her very carefully, nipped any dangerous impulses in the bud. Son, she said, happily possessive. When she let him go, she demanded Clay wouldn't touch her old woman sculpture again. Beatrice got new clay for her, leaving us to soothe her and ease her impatience. Alan began to recognize signs of impending destructive behavior. Twice he caught her hands and said no. She struggled against him until I spoke to her. As Beatrice returned, it happened again, and Beatrice said, No, Naomi. Obediently, Naomi put, let her hands fall to her sides. What is it? demanded Alan later when we had left Naomi safely, totally focused on her new work. Clay sculptures of us. Does she only listen to women or something? Beatrice took us back to the sitting room, sat us both down, but did not sit down herself. She went to a window and stared out. Naomi only obeys certain women, she said, and she's sometimes slow to obey. She's worse than most, probably because of the damage she managed to do to herself before I got to her. Beatrice faced us, stood biting her lip and frowning. I haven't had to give this particular speech for a while, she said. Most DGDs have the same, have the sense not to marry each other and produce children. I hope you two aren't planning to have any, in spite of our need. She took a deep breath. It's a pheromone. Ascent, and it's sex-linked. Men who inherit the disease from their fathers have no trace of the scent. They also tend to have an easier time with the disease, but they're useless to us as staff here. Men who inherit from their mother have much, have as much of the scent as men get. They can be useful here because the DGDs can at least be made to notice them. The same for women who inherit the, from their mothers, but not their fathers. It's only when two irresponsible get DGDs get together produce girl children like me or Lynn that you get someone who can really do some good in a place like this she looked at me we are very rare commodities you and I when you finish school you'll have a very well-paying job waiting for you here I asked for training perhaps beyond that I don't know you'll probably help start a retreat in some other part of the country others are badly needed 
She smiled humorously. People like us don't tend to get well, get along well together. You must realize that I don't like you any more than you like me. I swallowed. Saw her, though, through kind of a haze for a moment. Hated her mindlessly, just for a moment. Sit back. Relax your body. It helps. I obeyed. Not really wanting to obey her, but unable to think of anything else to do. Unable to think at all. We seem, she said, to be very territorial. Dilge is a haven for me when I'm the only one of my kind here. When I'm not, it's a prison. All it looks like to me is an unbelievable amount of work. She nodded. Almost too much. She smiled to herself. I was one of the first double DGDs to be born. When I was old enough to understand, I thought I didn't have much time. First, I tried to kill myself. Failing that, I tried to cram all the living I could into a small amount of time I assumed I had. One, when I got into this project, I worked as hard as I could to get into shape before I started to drift. By now, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I weren't working. Why haven't you... Drifted, I asked. I don't know. There, are, there aren't enough of our kind to know what's normal for us. Drifting is normal for, for every DGD sooner or later. Later, then? Why hasn't the scent been synthesized? Alan asked. Why are there still concentration camp rest homes and hospital wards? There have been people trying to synthesize it since I proved what I could do with it. No one has succeeded so far. All we've been able to do is keep our eyes open for people like Lynn. She turned to look at me. Dilled scholarship, right? Yeah, offered out of the blue. My people do a good job of keeping track. You would have been contacted just before you graduated or if you dropped out. Is it possible, Alan said, staring at me, that she's already doing it? Already using the scent to influence people you Beatrice asked all of us a group of DGDs we all live together we're all controlled of course but Beatrice smiled it's probably the quietest house full of DGD kids that anyone's ever seen I looked at Alan and he looked away I'm not doing anything to them I said I remind them of work they've already promised to do, that's all. You've put them at ease, Beatrice said. You're there. You, well, you leave your scent around the house. You speak to them individually. Without knowing why, they no doubt find it very comforting. Don't you, Alan? I don't know, he said. I suppose I must have. From my first visit to the house, I knew I wanted to move in, and... When I first saw Lynn, I... He shook his head. Funny, I thought all that was my idea. Will you work with us, Alan? Me? You want Lynn. I want you both. You have no idea how many people take one look at the workroom here and turn and run. You may be the kind of young people who ought to eventually take charge of a place like Dilge. Whether or not we want to, eh? He said. Frightened, I tried to take his hand, but he moved it away. Alan, this works, I said. It's only a stopgap, I know. 
Genetic engineering will probably give us the final answers, but for God's sake, this is something we can do now. It's something you can do. Play queen bee in a retreat full of workers. I've never had any ambition to be a drone. A physician isn't likely to be a drone, Beatrice said. Would you marry one of your patients? He demanded. That's what Lynn would be doing if she married me, whether I become a doctor or not. She looked away from him, stared across the room. My husband is here, she said softly. He's been a patient here for almost a decade. What better place for him when his time came? Shit, Alan muttered. He glanced at me. Let's get out of here. He got up and strode across the room to the door, pulled at it, and then realized it was locked. He turned to face Beatrice, his body language demanding she let him out. She went to him, took him by the shoulder, and turned him to face the door. Try it once more, she said. You can't break it. Try. Surprisingly, some of the hostility seemed to go out of him. This is one of those PV locks? he asked. Yes. I set my teeth and looked away. Let her work. She knew how to use this thing she and I both had, and for the moment she was on my side. I heard him make some effort with the door. The door didn't even rattle. Beatrice took his hand from it, and with her own hand flat against what appeared to be a large brass knob, she pushed the door open. The man who created that lock is nobody in particular, she said. He doesn't have an unusually high IQ, didn't even finish college, but sometime in his life, he read a science fiction story in which palm print locks were given. He went, that, he went that story one better by creating one that responded to voice or palm. It took him years, but he were, we were able to give him those years. The people of Dilge are problem solvers, Alan. Think of the problems you could solve. He looked at us, though he were about to begin to think, begin to understand. I don't see how biological research can be done that way, he said. Not with everyone acting on his own, not even aware of other researchers or their work. It is being done, she said. And not in isolation. Our retreat in Colorado specializes in it. It has just barely enough trained controlled DGDs to see that no one really works in isolation. Our, pa our patients can read and write those who haven't damaged themselves too badly. They can take each other's work into account if reports are made available to them, and they can read material that comes from the outside. They're working, Alan. The disease hasn't stopped them, won't stop them. He stared at her, seemed to be caught by her intensity or her scent. He spoke as though his words were strained, as though they hurt his throat. I won't be a puppet. I won't be controlled by a goddamn smell. Alan, I won't be what my mother is. I'd rather be dead. There's no reason for you to become what your mother is. He drew back in obvious disbelief. Your mother is brain damaged thanks to, the, thanks to the three months she spent in that custodial care toilet. She had no speech at all when I met her. She's improved more than you can imagine. None of that has to happen to you. Work with us and we'll see that none of it happens to you. He hesitated, seemed less sure of himself. Even that much flexibility in him was surprising. I'll be under your control, or Lynn's, he said. She shook her head. Not even your mother is under my control. She's aware of me. She's able to make, take direction from me. She trusts me the way any blind person would trust her guide. There's more to it than that. Not here. Not in any of our retreats. I don't believe you. Then you don't understand how much individuality our people retain. 
They know they need help, but they have minds of their own. If you want to see the abuse of power you're worried about, go to a DGT ward. You're better than that, I'll admit. Hell is probably better than that, but you don't trust us. He shrugged. You do, you know, she smiled. You don't want to, but you do. That's what worries you, and it leaves you with work to do. Look into what I've said. See for yourself. We offer DGDs a chance to live and do whatever they decide is important to them. What do you have? What can you realistically hope for that's better than that? Silence. I don't know what to think, he said finally. Go home, she said. Decide what to think. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. He looked at me. I went to him, not sure how he'd react. Not sure he'd want me no matter what he decided. What are you going to do? He asked. The question startled me. You have a choice, I said. I don't. If she's right, how could I not wind up running a retreat? Do you want to? I swallowed. I hadn't really faced that question yet. Did I want to spend my life in something that was basically a refined DGD ward? No! But you will. Yes. I thought for a moment. Hunted for the right words. You'd do it. What? If the pheromone were something only men had, you would do it. That silence again. After a time, he took my hand and we followed Beatrice out to the car. Before I could get in with him and our guard escort, she caught my arm. I jerked away reflexively. By the time I caught myself, I had swung around as though I meant to hit her. Hell, I did mean to hit her, but I stopped myself in time. Sorry, I said with no attempt at sincerity. She held out a card and I took it. My private number, she said. Before seven or after nine, usually, you and I will communicate best by phone. I resisted the impulse to throw the card away. God, she brought out the child in me. Inside the car, Alan said something to the guard. I couldn't hear what it was, but the sound of his voice reminded me of him arguing with her. Her logic and her scent. She had all but won him for me, and I couldn't manage even a token of gratitude. I spoke to her, low-voiced. He never really had a chance, did he? She looked surprised. That's up to you. You can keep him or drive him away. I assure you, you can drive him away. How? By imagining that she doesn't have a chance. She smiled faintly. Phone me from your territory. We have a great deal to say to each other, and I'd rather we didn't say it as enemies. She had lived with meeting people like me for decades. She had good control. I, on the other hand, was at the end of my control. All I could do was scramble in the car and floor my own phantom accelerator as the guard drove us to the gate. I couldn't look back at her until we were well away from the house, until we'd left the guard at the gate and gone off the property. I couldn't make myself look back. 
for long, for long, irrational minutes, I was convinced that somehow if I turned, I would see myself standing there, gray and old, growing small in the distance, vanishing. That is the last bit of Octavia's, Octavia Butler's The Evening and the Morning and the Night. Um, it's a short story in a collection she put together called uh, Blood Child. These are all pretty eerie, a little bit dark um, short stories that she's written um, throughout her life. And that really, it really struck me because at the forefront were women who simply by their own nature were drawn to leadership simply because the people around them were drawn to them they have something that the others needed um and i think i was inspired by the event at naval in los angeles because i was consistently in spaces where women were gathering people together leading people organizing them um giving them tasks challenging them and engaging them and these were all women in the forefront women or non-men and that is one of my favorite things about the week i spent in la and I had read this story on the plane on the way there, and it struck me again when I was plotting out this episode. Um, all these spaces curated by women, powerful women who maybe don't feel like they have a choice because they have the tools and they have the strength. Maybe they feel like they don't have a choice but to make these spaces because someone has to do it. You know, and with all the love and passion that they do it with, sometimes it, maybe it does feel like a burden. Sometimes it's heavy uh, to be in that position, I imagine. And I just, reading this, felt such immense gratitude to um, Aisha with Stokely's and um, the women at High and Tight, um, <laughs> Uzo and Stoney at uh, Stuzo Clothing, and then everyone that helped bring the naval event together, including um, <laughs> Kat Jones, um, who's another powerful person that I was looking forward to meeting. I just feel so, so grateful to the women and non-women out there creating spaces, curating experiences, and cultivating community, um, either because they feel called to do it or for pure love and passion and drive. But whatever it is, it's a lot of responsibility to take on. Um, and Shelly Shell herself takes on so much responsibility of being a conduit in the queer black community. That's something I also don't take for granted, um, especially the way that I was cared for and hosted in my time there, even though like, you know, I came in the middle of everyone else's week. Um, so I wanted to close with the last bit of that story, the part where, you know, <laughs> the woman seems like she has no choice because she has the power, she has the means to make a difference, and she feels like she has no choice, even though it's an uncomfortable responsibility and a bit of a heavy fate. <laughs> um, so I just felt such gratitude as I came to the close of that story. So I hope that you... Um, 
I hope that you feel that gratitude as well, whether you're in the communities and spaces that I've been describing on this episode or whether you simply observe or are an ally of those communities. I hope you feel the gratitude for the powerful women and non-women who are creating spaces in a world where there's hardly any space for women, let alone black women, let alone queer women. So I feel grateful and blessed And I think my Cali ventures were pretty fucking successful. So, last time, my name is Okara Imani, and I'm just happy to be here.